history uh, of alcoholism, we're in trouble. But I think we, as a as a movement, uh, as a group of people who are uh, fellowshipping together around a common uh, survival, uh, very much as persons maybe who uh, who have uh, survived uh, military imprisonment or concentration camp, as long as we have some understanding of who we are, I think uh, we have a better chance of surviving and uh, of growing in our numbers and in the quality uh, of our functioning, both as individuals and, and as a group in AA. Uh, for this reason, I'm especially happy to present to you uh, Dr. Thomas, who is medical director of the Preston Alcohol Treatment Service in Kingwood, West Virginia. And he's going to tell us something important about the history and future of Jelinek's disease. And for those of you who don't know what Jelinek's disease is, you're in for a special treat. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Earl. My name's Tom, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm a very grateful recovering alcoholic. And uh, I'm very delighted that Earl asked me to, to speak on Jelinek and, and the history of um, the disease concept of alcoholism. Uh, after I went to Toronto... I'm sorry, Montreal. I forgot so many people from Toronto. All Jelinek's work is uh, listed under the Toronto Addiction Center, and that's where I got most of my material. Uh, also, there's some uh, from Alberta. He's, he spent his uh, next to last year in, in Canada uh, as the director of alcoholism. And, but uh, after I went to Montreal, I, I was impressed by the spirituality of AA as keeping me sober, and not so much as a medical uh, science of Dr. Jelinek, and so what I I'm going to try to do today is is show you how the spirit of AA is married um, and united to the uh, uh, medical knowledge, medical science, and see if we can see how some of the spirituality is translated through the brain into uh, into what what causes our recovery and what causes our uh, uh, our disease. I'm not sure I can pull this off, but I, I think it will be provocative because a lot of the maps of the mind that I have uh, on these slides are still highly theoretical. Uh, first, I'd like to start off with uh, with Bill Wilson. And uh, let's see if we can have the first slide here. How do these lights go out? I think I'm going to need more. I think I'm going to need it darker, but... Uh, I'll come and get the lights. Okay, let's try it this way first and see how it works. Now, this is Bill Wilson, and uh, he had this uh, conversion experience. And in this, in this presentation, I'm going to talk about his conversion experience and how we all have a conversion experience, how I had a conversion experience that wasn't dramatic and instantaneous uh, the way his was. Also, I'm going to talk about the personae dramatis of this story, uh, this historical uh, survey of sobriety and AA and uh, Jelinek. And the people who will be, the main characters will be Dr. Carl Jung and uh, Dr. William James and some doctors of the church, Augustine and uh, St. Ignatius and St. Bernard and a few others that seem to inculcate the ancient wisdom that somehow Bill Wilson was able to capture in his writings. Bill Wilson was born in East Dorset, and this is an adolescent picture. He was going through a traumatic time there. He turns out to be a, 
a child of an alcoholic. Uh, his father, Gilly, was his most uh, endeared companion, his father. And uh, Gilly was an alcoholic. If we go by Jolnick's definition of alcoholism, which is the uh, any drinking which causes damage in a person's life. Gilly was a courier, and he uh, divorced uh, Emily, or she divorced him. And this was when Bill Wilson was only 13, a tra- very traumatic part of his life. And uh, he carried these scars in uh, right till, uh, uh, till the very end, apparently, until he actually got some kind of spiritual release from this uh, traumatic experience. This is Gilly. Gilly was a hail fellow, well met, was a spree drinker. But his father was a confirmed alcoholic. Everybody knew he was an alcoholic. There's a lot of questions whether Gilly was just a heavy drinker. But anyhow, his drinking did did uh, very deeply affect Bill Wilson. And after the separation, uh, he didn't see his father again for nine years. This is Bill Wilson's first uh, experience with uh, a spiritual experience. Our spiritual awakening was with Winchester Cathedral when he was in World War One. He described it as coming in to the cathedral and he had tremendous anxiety and worry and depression, which seemed to plague him all of his life. As he came in the cathedral, he said he felt he was in the presence of something much greater than himself, and he felt a unified uh, spirit with the entire universe. This is the same feeling that William James had when he had his spiritual awakening that prompted the uh, writing of the um, uh, varieties of religious experience. We're going to talk more about James later on. And this is Bill Wilson again, uh, where he actually shook his depression. He had three episodes of depressions. I'm going to play a tape of Bill Wilson's voice, I hope it comes through, on his exact wording of this spiritual experience he had. So we'll have something to go on with the rest of the talk. The great realization of my life, the central one of it all, and the very same one which has come to each AA member here. Rebelling a little still, I sunk into a deeper and deeper depression. And in the bottom of that set, I suppose the last trace of my obstinacy was crushed out. Ebby had just visited him in the town's hospital for the second time, and Ebby had given him his neat little formula for uh, staying sober, how it worked for Ebby. And Bill Wilson, after Ebby left, is uh, describing this experience. I was, in fact, a child crying in the dark. And I said, as you have said, now I will do anything to get well. Anything to get well. God knows this is more serious than cancer. And indeed, I have a cancer of the mind, of the emotions, and of the soul. Yes, I will do anything to get well. And then, with no hope, no faith at all, I... This is interesting because when William James had his conversion experience, he uh, made the comment that he had absolutely no faith at all, but that he, um, he knew he had to do something to get him out of this morbid despair and this deep fear that he had, and he, he just reached out without any hope of getting any kind of relief or release, the same as Bill Wilson. If there is a God, will he show himself? My experience was granted to me very suddenly. It seemed to me that place lit up in a great white light. 
In the mind's eye, I seem to be on a mountaintop. A great wind is blowing. And I know it is not of air, but of spirit. There are no words to describe those minutes. At length, I find myself on the bed. But now I lie in a different world. I am at one with the whole universe. A sense of presence is around and through me. And I say to myself, so this is the God of the preacher. Thank God that I'm a free man. As you know, Bill went on after that experience to uh, try to sober up uh, all the drunks in Brooklyn. This is where he had the experience. This is the town's hospital on West Central Park. He went in there on six occasions before that, and never once was he able to attain any kind of sobriety because he wasn't able to surrender. He, uh, In the summer of that year, he came in, and he had one cornerstone that in recovery. He decided with Dr. Silkworth's help that he had a hopeless condition. Dr. Silkworth said, you have an absolutely hopeless condition. You will never recover. You'll either go sane or die within six months. And we shared that knowledge with Lois. Then this is Evie's neat little formula. I'm sure you all remember, but I'll refresh you on it. You admit you are licked. You get honest with yourself. You talk it out with somebody else. Usually it has the same problem. You make restitution to the people you have harmed. You try to give of yourself with no demand for reward, and you pray to whatever God you think there is to help you do these things. This is Dr. Silkworth. Dr. Silkworth added the other cornerstone. He said when Bill failed, and all he, he worked incessantly, these are Dr. Bob's words, that Bill had worked incessantly with drunks from December 11th, when he had his uh, spiritual experience, until Mother's Day on May 12th, 1935, about six months later, that he actually talked to Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob was the first one that actually he, quote, sobered up, in which this message gelled. And the reason he was striking out, apparently, in all these folks, was Dr. Silkworth, was he said, you're not emphasizing it's a medical problem, it's a disease. It's a disease that's going to cause him to go mad, and it's going to cause him to die. And it's a disease for which there's no cure. And it's a disease that's progressive and fatal. And um, then Bill, he, Bill, his first candidate to try that out on, was... Uh, on Dr. Bob. He had a, a business deal, as you know, in Akron. He went to Akron. He was almost ready to drink because the bar was on the other side of the church directory. He saw the church directory, found the, the Reverend Tunks, called Reverend Tunks, who put him in touch with Henrietta Cyberling. Henrietta Cyberling had been working with Dr. Bob, trying to get him to, uh, through the Oxford movement, to get some kind of spiritual program in his life where he wouldn't have to drink. Dr. Bob had done everything the Oxford group had told him to do. He had turned his life over to a God. He had, he had gone to church. He, had, he was reading from the book. He was doing all the things they told him to do, but he said, I was getting stewed every night. And so it seemed like for him, the spiritual was, still was not enough. On December in 1934, at the same time that Bill Wilson was having his experience at the town's hospital, Henrietta Cyberling, in a sneaky sort of way, called a meeting at, uh, T, uh, uh, at the Williams house. Uh, who was a member of the Oxford group, and, and of course they were going to share the most uh, devastating problem they had uh, that would need spiritual help and guidance in order to, uh, at T. Henry Williams' house. They arranged this meeting. Dr. Bob, when it came his turn, they'd all share this experience. He said, well, I'm going to tell you something. 
that'll probably ruin my career. I'm a, I'm a drunk, a hopeless drunk. I can't stop drinking. And they all said, do you want to stop? And he said, I definitely want to stop. And they said, get down on your knees. He got down on his knees. He prayed for guidance the way the Oxford movement had, had, had instructed him. Nothing happened. But that night, or shortly after, Henrietta had a dream or a vision or something. And in that, she said, we finally got the solution to Dr. Bob's problem, which she called him up, had him come over, sat down. I said, I have the solution to your problem. He said, what is it? She said, don't take the first drink. <laughs> this is Dr. Bob after he got out of Dartmouth. Dr. Bob started his drinking in Dartmouth. He came from a very pious type of family. His father was a school teacher and his mother very strict uh, in uh, the congregational type of faith. He hated any, all, anything to do with going to church and anything to do with religion because he was forced to do it. And he said when he first went to Dartmouth and had his first drink, that he felt was the panacea for all ills. That he didn't think he would ever have any problems from then on. That's how it affected him from the beginning. This is Dr. Bob in his later years when he gave his last talk. And this is St. Thomas uh, Hospital, where the Dr. Bob and Sister Ignatia uh, used the disease concept, emphasized that it's a disease, uh, emphasized it was a fatal disease, emphasized that we'd go insane or die if we didn't break the obsession to drink. This is Sister Ignatia, who used to fudge on the diagnoses, like many of us are forced to do, <laughs> in order to get people in the hospital. Now we're playing the game with the DRGs. And this is the Oxford Group's tenants. I'm not going to go through all these because they're pretty well summed up in, uh, in Evie's um, little, uh, neat little formula. But what I'm going to mention here is there was absolute honesty, purity, unselfishness, and love. And the fact of sharing our sins and asking God, surrendering our life completely is the third step. And listening and accepting, relying on God's guidance and carrying out all of the above. But it was too absolute and it was too, too hard for the drunks to, to follow this, uh, this spiritual formula. They needed, uh, they needed more than that, and they were, they were different. They found out shortly afterwards, and they split off from uh, the Oxford group in New York and in Akron. And then this is the, the mention in the big book where they actually document what the first 100, as Bill being the scribe, what they, how they defined alcoholism. And this turned out to be the same alcoholism that Jelinek described when he talked about his alpha, beta, and gamma. This is the gamma alcoholic of Jelinek. This is the so-called real alcoholic of Bill Wilson in the big book. We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. We are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. Over any considerable period of time, we get worse, never better. We are like men who have lost our legs. They never grow new ones. Neither does there appear to be any kind of treatment that medical science can give us, which will make alcoholics of our kind like other men. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. That's the chronicity of the disease. The chronicity of the disease had been missed, and this was emphasized later by Jelinek, but it was emphasized all the way through the big book, that we're recovering from a chronic disease. The big book has mentioned in it that I could find 32 instances where they called alcoholism a disease. They call it by five different names, sickness, malady, ailment, uh, pathological condition, but they always came up with the same definition of disease, a disease state. And then Alcoholics Anonymous went out of its uh, childhood where they were flying blind into the, its adolescence when they had this article by Jack uh, Alexander in, in um, the Saturday Evening Post in March 1st, 1941. This is an interesting uh, uh, date because that's the year Jelinek uh, started as the director of alcoholism at the Yale School for Alcohol Studies. 
But this was a, a new era. Here they realized they're going to have to get to the 6,000 inquiries that came from people, suffering alcoholics and their families who were asking, how do we get this, this program of recovery? How do we get a hold of this so-called cure to break the obsession to drink alcohol? And so that's when they, the first time the big book got off its feet and became, uh, was able to be sold all over in, uh, in, in cities all over the country. The next figure that, that's in, uh, that I think is of extreme importance was Dr. Harry Tebow. Dr. Harry Tebow, who died in 1961, was the one who actually did the psychotherapy with Bill for his depression. He was the one who, first one that I could see that, who actually used the uh, principles of Alcoholics Anonymous, the four principles of uh, humility, first getting humility, or first hitting a bottom, and he got that from William James, or William James used that, that term, hitting a bottom, and then the idea of humility staying with your ego staying I'm on the bottom so it won't get back in control again. The third was the surrender process, not compliance, but surrender. And the fourth one was ego reduction at depth, or ego collapse, as he liked to use the word. And this was his first article in Alcoholics Anonymous, an experiment in nature, where he mentioned those four necessary things for recovery. First, the bottom had to be hit. Second, the humility had to come to keep one in his bottom psychologically so his ego wouldn't gain control. Third, had to be ego reduction or collapse. Or, or disinter- uh, not disintegration of the ego, but this is the ego, the so-called uh, narcissistic ego of Freud, the, the the personal ego of the child, not not the later uh, healthy ego, that had to be uh, smashed, and uh, and the last was the uh, complete and absolute surrender. And this is the article uh, presented to the American Psychiatric Association by Dr. Harry Tebow in, in the 50s. Active surrender, the role of psychiatry in the field of alcoholism. Again, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm an internist, but from all the psychiatrists I talked to, this was a fairly new concept of use, uh, to use the idea of surrender and to use the idea of, uh, of ego uh, deflation at depth. Ego factors, surrender versus compliance, alcoholism its nature and treatment. Again, he mentioned the four essentials for recovery. And finally, something that was unheard of, as far again, to my knowledge, at that time was intervention, bringing the bottom up so the alcoholic won't have to, to die before he gets help, won't have to go insane before he gets help, won't have to undergo tre- uh, tremendous liver disintegration and deterioration uh, the way Luther just described before he gets help. In other words, raising the bottom to meet the alcoholic. And then the conversion phenomena. The whole history of the alcoholic movement is change. How how through a higher power or how, how through something that's beyond human power we are able to change. And uh, Bill Wilson, by the grace of God, did it suddenly and dramatically with a conversion experience, the way Paul did on the road to Damascus and the, and the other uh, individuals did it uh, that uh, William James describes in his uh, varieties of religious experience. But we all have to do it. I have to change. I had to change. And if I don't change, uh, I'll go back to my drinking, I know. This is where Bill did his work at the Stepping Stones. He finally got a house in New Bedford, New York, after he and Lois had gone through all sorts of tribulations and no place to live. And uh, He uh, wrote there the uh, 12 uh, steps and the 12 traditions, or the 12, 12 and 12. After the book Alcoholics Anonymous seemed to fail, in certain individuals. And this Ernie Kurtz told us at the Minneapolis meeting last year, he said of all the, those who sobered up, in the, and there were about a hundred of those from the New York group, all of them went back to drinking between 1939 when the big book was published and 1942. 
And that was the time when they were using the big book to have all the answers. And they weren't changing. They weren't using the 12 steps to change their lives. They weren't getting the transformation that was necessary to stay sober. They were using the big book more as a way to, uh, to, to answer their problems and not as a way to change uh, their psyche, to change their personality. And so Bill had to write the 12 and 12, emphasizing that unless we work these steps, unless we live these steps, that we, uh, we're very, very at risk to uh, go back and relapse into our disease. Bill made many talks to medical societies. All of this fell on deaf ears as far as the medical community. And this is what made me interested in going through this early part of AA history, is that I've always been puzzled by myself why the spirituality of AA seems to be so contradictory and seems to be so unreconciled to medical science. How can we re- reconcile the, the humanistic and the, uh, the modernistic uh, materialism and maybe humanism of medical science? How can we reconcile that with the spirituality, the spirit of Alcoholics Anonymous? And uh, there are only two people at the turn of the century who seemed to be doing this without any reservations. One was Carl Jung, uh, who was a Swiss psychiatrist who was not... Uh, Oh, no longer with uh, Freud. He, he split with Freud in 1912, but he had five years, very fruitful years with Freud. And he he um, was one who felt there was no conflict between science and religion, that there was no conflict between reason and faith, and that there was no conflict uh, between the knowledge we can gain through medical science and investigation with the spiritual type of philosophy. Uh, and uh, the other individual was William James. I'm going to talk about those uh, in some detail but this is the miracle of the uh, of the recovery program this was simply by word of mouth this is simply by one alcoholic talking to another alcoholic that was the third cornerstone i failed to mention after getting the hopelessness after noticing the crisis in our in our lives then we have to have another alcoholic another alcoholic talk to me i remember and i talked to another alcoholic and through that chain reaction we have this this marvelous miracle that was just so evident in montreal when when 50,000 alcoholics are up there singing Happy Birthday AA in at least 10 different languages. And uh, it just brought tears to my eyes. I, I still haven't recovered from that experience. Five recovered at the end of the first year. Fifteen recovered at the end of the second year. By the end of uh, the third year, they hadn't even written a big book yet. Only 40 had recovered. A hundred had recovered in 1938 when Bill was writing the, in the fall. And he wrote the steps in December. And then in 1939, uh, in the spring, he wrote... The big book was published in April. 400 recovered, fifth year. 8,000 recovered by the end of the seventh year. I talked to uh, uh, some individuals who seem to have the statistics on this in the general service office. And they said now their official count is 1.2 million, uh, 1.250 recovered alcoholics in the United States. Uh, and that there are 3 million unofficial all over the world. And that's in a 50-year period. Is this thing mushrooms? It should be. We had should have 50 million alcoholics uh, recovered uh, by the time they have the next uh, hundred year. When they get hit, time they hit the hundred year, I, I won't be there for that one. But the um, now Jelinek though painted a, a, a very gloomy picture. He had a Jelinek formula which estimated in 19 when he wrote the uh, disease concept in 1960 that there were only uh, 5 million alcoholics. And he estimated that 250,000 drinking people, and he had various classifications, would cross the wall into addiction uh, within 25 years. And then in the statistics I got from the National Council and NIAAA in the, for 1982, uh, the, the figure they gave me were 10 million. 
uh, gamma alcoholics or so-called real alcoholics that had developed a compulsion that would cross the wall, the irreversible wall of addiction. The last award was given in recognition by the public, American Public Health uh, for uh, the fact that alcoholism was the greatest step in treating a chronic illness uh, in the century. And then a, a, uh, the Almond family group started in 1951 by Lois when the families used to go to the AA meetings with their spouses. And in 1957, Alateen was started as an offshoot of Almond. Now, this is Dr. Carl Jung. Dr. Carl Jung was, a, was the son of a, a minister. And he, uh, he held that, um, in general, that there was an unconscious very much like Freud. But he felt the unconscious was more of a collective unconscious. He felt that it was a dynamic type of thing that, that affected our behavior unless we had it in check by some higher power, some divinity, some spirituality, some uh, what he called God force acting in our life in order to control this enormously uh, seething, boiling, unconscious uh, mind of ours, our unconscious brain. And this, this brain was one of, that was destructive. He felt it was one that was evil. He actually used the word evil. He thought it was one that was entirely negative, and he thought it was one that was always self-serving. And uh, this was the unconscious that we're going to try to explore a little bit on some of these maps. Bill Wilson corresponded with Dr. Carl Jung had two great things. One of them, he started AA, if you want to look at it, because Roland Hazard went to Carl Jung, spent a year with him over in Switzerland under intense psychotherapy, trying to learn more about himself and his disease. Dr. Jung treated the alcoholics as if they had a disease. He wasn't sure whether it was a disease of the mind or a biological genetic disease. But he treated them as a diseased person. And uh, Roland Jung came back and after a short period of time relapsed again and started drinking. Came back to Carl Jung and said, uh, what's happened? I had all the answers. I'm drinking. He said, we have no cure. We have no answer. We have no solution for you. The only thing you're going to have to somehow get some kind of spiritual experience, some kind of deep-seated psychic psychological conversion experience in order to uh, to be freed from this obsession to drink alcohol and then Carl uh, and then uh, Hazard or Roland went to Ebby and, and after joining the Oxford movement gave him a simple neat little formula Ebby went to Bill but we hear again from Dr. Carl Jung and these letters weren't published this is from the grapevine in 1961 these letters weren't published till Dr. Carl Jung died because he he uh, very uh, definitely stated he didn't want this knowledge that he wrote in this letter, this, this communication with Bill Wilson to come out. What Bill Wilson asked him, he said, what was it that you told Roland H.? What was it that you told him the second time he came to see you? And this is what, well, I'm going to read this part for you. He said, the reason why I did not tell him everything was that in, that in those days I had to be exceedingly careful of what I said. I found that I was misunderstood in every possible way. Uh, thus, I was very careful when I talked to Roland H. But what I really thought about was the result of many experiences with men of his kind. His craving for alcohol was the equivalent on a low level of the spiritual thirst of our being for wholeness, expressed in medieval language, the union with God. You see, alcohol in Latin is spiritus, and you use the same word for the highest religious experience as well as the most depraving poison. The helpful formula, therefore, is spiritus contra spiritum, the spiritual experience against the spiritus fermenti. Thanking you again for your kind letter. The next person that I'd like to talk about was a doctor. He went to Harvard Medical School. 
He went to Harvard Medical School in 1864 and graduated in 1869, Dr. William James. He was the son of Henry James and the brother of the Henry James that was the great author and psychological uh, author of dramatic novels. He was born in 1842, died in 1910. That was the year my dad graduated from Harvard. Uh, I sort of went through all this and I could see my drinking pattern (laughs) emerging through all this history. He wrote these four different books. One of them was a pamphlet, The Will to Believe. And this is, he went through, after he graduated from medical school, he was undecided as to whether to go into medicine or whether to go into uh, psychology or whether to go into physiology or whether to go into philosophy. And so he was actually the founder at Harvard of the Department of Psychology. But he taught Harvard for 20, at Harvard for 20 years, he taught physiology and he worked with Baldich. Uh, and this phys- physiology they're working with was in the physiolo- physiology of our perception and physiology of the brain and, and how we, uh, it, it affects our behavior. And they felt at that time that our behavior was chemically controlled uh, by some of the unconscious uh, part of the brain that we had no control over. That he was one very much like Jung who felt that there was indeed a higher power, that we needed this higher power even if we didn't believe in him. And when he's coming out of his own depression, he described this as a morbid sense of fear and a dark, dark depression over which I had no power and which I had had completely found myself absolutely powerless and in which I had no place to turn. And so I reached out with an act of my will and I decided I will believe even though I don't believe. I'm going to believe. So he made himself believe, sort of like our old formula that my sponsor told me, fake it till you make it. And so he turned this over and he wasn't nearly as dramatically uh, relieved of his uh, depression and his morbid fear. His morbid fear was so paralytic he couldn't get out of bed. Uh, and he was normally a very vigorous uh, individual. Then he wrote the science of psychology and tried to get make spiritual principles into the science uh, so that it wasn't uh, so disconnected and disorganized. He sort of did for psychology what uh, Jelinek did for alcoholism. Then he wrote the Varieties of Religious Experience, which grew out of the, the Gifford lectures he gave from 1902 to 1904. And these, he mentioned his own experience, and he went through the experience of some of the great saints who, Augustine, he mentioned Augustine, who, who had to break out of lust, his uh, maladaptive uh, behavior disorder of lust. Um, he was always seeking chastity, and he uh, uh, became the father of pragmatism. And pragmatism at that time was defined as a radical empiricism, and he, this book was one which sort of blew the whole faculty of Harvard away because they didn't think anybody should be this radical. But the key thing that Bill Wilson picked up on this radical empiricism of William James was that you use anything that works and any experience that you have or I have or anybody has that will take them from a a morbid pit of depression and deep unhappiness to a sense of euphoria and unification and completeness and fulfillment, you use it. Even though it is religion, even though it is spiritual, even though it is non-materialistic, even though it's invisible, even though you don't understand it, use it. In other words, you uh, utilize, not analyze, if uh, if I might uh, translate that. He went back uh, to the works. This is uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who was the first who started the Cistercian order. St. Bernard wrote 12 steps. Interestingly enough, called De Diligendo Deo, which is on the love of God, or how to love God. And this is 12 steps, and all these 12 steps came down, boiled down to what Dr. Bob says the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous boil down to, which is love and service. 
12 steps on how to go from love of self to love of God. And that whole thing involves on how to better love neighbor. And uh, so this was, and Bill Wilson, when, when asked about this by Dr. Father Ed Dowling, have you ever heard of St. Bernard? Have you ever heard of any of these, these uh, doctors of the church who have all this wisdom that you seem to be using through your pen? Uh, he said, I've never heard of any of the saints. I don't have anything to do with saints. And this is Father Ed Dowling. Looks like he's taking a pill there. <laughs> Better check that out. Huh? Maybe it needs to be 12 stepped. Huh? This is St. Ignatius. That was the first thing. When Bill Wilson was lying on his cot in the clubhouse of Alcoholics Anonymous back in 1940 and 41, it was raining, there was thundering lightning, Tom was making coffee downstairs, and this little old man came, and he looked like he was an alky, but he wasn't. And he was coming up the steps, and Tom came up and said, Bill, there's a guy here, looks like he really needs help. He's a pitiful creature, he's crippled, and uh, he wants, he insists on talking to you. It was Father Ed Dowling. Bill was in a state of depression, and suicidal depression. And uh, Father Ed came up and started talking. They talked all night, and the the topic of their comment, the theme was that he first asked me, he said, did you study St. Ignatius, the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, when you wrote these steps? Because it looks to me like it's a direct translation. St. Ignatius was the founder of the Jesuit, or the Society of Jesus, or Jesus or the Jesuits, uh, and he died in uh, uh, 1556. And that's a picture of Ignatius there. And this is uh, spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. I don't know if we can uh, see this. First examination of conscience, the fourth step. Second, confession of faults, the fifth step. Third, the confession of wrongdoings, the fifth step. Fourth, the uh, forgiving of others, which would be the men's eighth and ninth step, maybe asking forgiveness of God and fellow men. Absolute submission to the God's will. All those were part of the spiritual exercises that uh, the follower of the Jesuits. The other step, 11, came from St. Augustine, whose prayer in the, in the confessions and in the city of God was a continuous prayer, which went like this. God, please command me to know your will. And please give me the power to carry it out. Almost a direct. And again, Bill had no knowledge of these, uh, of this, this ancient wisdom. This is the first article, the grapevine, and I'm going to get to Jelinek. <laughs> uh, these, this article came out in June of 1941, and uh, it says two Yale savants stress alcoholism as a true disease. Those savants happened to be Dr. Howard Haggard, who was working at Yale in the physiology department, who wrote this great book uh, called Through the Alimentary Tract with Gun and Camera. Uh, and he also wrote about popularizing medical things for the lay public. And the other one was E.M. E. Jelinek. E.M. Jelinek was not a doctor. He had a, an honorary degree conferred upon him later on. But he was not really a doctor. He was a, a statistician, a biometrician who dealt with biological statistics. And he worked for United Fruit for many years and did his basic uh, work and his great masterpiece was a work on the banana. <laughs> then he got into alcoholism and sort of <laughs> revolutionized that. This is Dr. E. M. Jelinek. He was born in 1890, died in, in 63. He was a hopeless addict. His his uh, drug of choice was tobacco, and he was like Freud. Freud chewed that cigar till his mouth fell off, and uh, Jelinek smoked incessantly. He was an inveterate smoker. He was a character of all, I just loved to spend the whole time talking about Bunky, that was his nickname. Um, Bunky means a little uh, onion or something in Hungarian, but I don't have, know what that is, but that, that nickname stuck. And he was so popular around Yale 
back in the 40s and early 50s that uh, some guy addressed him, uh, Bunky, uh, United States. That was the address, and he got it somehow. <laughs> he was the one who started the Yale School of Alcoholic Studies. It later was, uh, went to Rutgers. He was the first director of alcoholism. He was the one who started the Encyclopedia for Alcoholism. He was the one who started the Yale Plan Clinics at Hartford and at Yale. He worked with a lot of people who weren't doctors. Uh, most of them were, they were sociologists, Selden Bacon, and there was Lowley, who was a, a criminologist, and uh, there was uh, Anne Rowe, who was, uh, uh, did work with education, and there was another legal expert. He worked with a lot of different people that were on his team. These people had been on his team since he, he brought them all down with him from uh, Worcester, where he was working as, with the neuroendocrine uh, department there on trying to find out what's the biochemical disturbance that uh, causes schizophrenia. He worked there with Roy Hoskins and with Hudson Hoagland. Hudson Hoagland was one of my professors when I was an undergraduate at Harvard. And at that time, they thought that schizophrenia was a potassium deficiency. Uh, if you look at some of my patients that have been on diuretics, my cardiacs, uh, they're all potassium deficient, but none of them are schizophrenics. And Jelinek was to become the father, the principal architect in the modern alcoholism movement. The scientific approach to the disease. He was the one that brought medical science uh, under direct observation and investigation to find out what is alcoholism. At that time, it was right after Prohibition had just ended, and everybody thought it was a sin, everybody thought it was a crime, everybody thought it was a moral weakness, a moral depravity. They thought it was some kind of characterological defect, some kind of behavioral disorder, all sorts of things. He tried to make some sense out of all these conflicting theories. And this is a banana. The reason this is important is he started working on the banana and found that there were certain biogenic amines in the banana that preserved it and protected it from climatic changes. As you know, if you take a banana and put it in a refrigerator, uh, it undergoes some strange colors. The same colors that I underwent when I was drinking. It <laughs> starts out green and then it turns yellow, bright, bright yellow, and then it gets black and necrotic and the gangrenous and uh, the whole bit. Uh, but he found in this banana that serotonin and some of the components of the banana, uh, and mainly serotonin was the one that they, they worked on then, and he knew that there were others, but he couldn't measure them with the techniques they had at that time. But it was the thing that protected them from climactic changes. It seemed to somehow measure uh, the enzyme changes uh, against heat, uh, severe cold. Uh, bananas do great in heat, but they can't uh, uh, accept cold. And he corrected, uh, this is the first page of the book, The Disease Concept of Alcoholism, and he says around 1940, the phrase, new approach to alcoholism was coined. And he went on to say the renewed approach. He said it's been, for years we've known it's a disease, but since the, the pro prohibition and the temperance movement started 100 years ago in 1840, uh, that it's been distorted and has been called more now a sin, and it's really a disease. And from the very start, he, he used the term disease to describe the gamma alcoholics. I'm going to whip through this pretty fast. We went back to Seneca. Seneca was the first person who worked with alcoholics. Seneca was a, a Roman philosopher who was the lawyer and mentor of Nero. He was a Stoic philosopher. And they believe, the Stoic philosophy believes that, that you shouldn't drink alcohol for a lot of reasons. But the main reason was that it, it separated you from any god or any kind of divinity. That any time you took a chemical, it would, it would send you into your own type of self-thinking Selfishness in which it separates you from a, a higher power or a higher divinity. He called it uh, the uh, he called it Deus, the word God. He worked with these patrician youngsters 
And they would uh, stop drinking. You'd take them out to an island, get them dried out, and they'd come back. In a short period of time, they're back on the same wine. They would drink undiluted wine, which was considered then the first idea of accustomed, or the first theory of accustomed drunkenness. And he very carefully delineated two types of drinking. One was drunkenness, where one drinks and becomes drunk or intoxicated, but the other one was a person who had to drink. Not didn't want to drink, but a person who needed to drink, seemed to have to drink, seemed to be compelled to drink. So he first described compulsivity or compulsion, uh, but he called it a custom or a habitual drunkenness. And then Benjamin Rush in the 18th century and Thomas Trotter in England both came out with the idea that alcoholism was a disease. However, they said it's disease caused by alcohol is alcohol, the substance alcohol. And later the temperance movement took that and... Uh, Benjamin Rush and Trotter both felt that the drunkard, the accustomed drunkard or the habitual drunkard was a sick person, not a bad person. The temperance movement, in the early temperance movement, they still said it's okay. Okay to drink rum, okay to drink wine, okay to drink beer, because those aren't the true spiritus for men no, no hard stuff. Middle alcoholism, they said it's still an illness, but it's a moral wrong plus an illness. And late temperance movement, as epitomized by Carrie Nation when she went around smashing the bars out in the, in Kansas, was uh, alcoholism is a sin and a vice. Alcohol is a sinful substance. It's the devil's brew. Anybody who drinks is an alcoholic and a sinner. And the whole disease idea fell by the wayside. The temperance movement evolved, as you know, into prohibition. But the prohibition started in the States in 1846 from the Anti-Saloon League. The Anti-Saloon League came out and saying that it's sinful to drink, it's, it's unethical, it's, it's a crime to drink. And so they, the States, all of them except a few... Uh, by the time Prohibition came into effect in 1918 with the Volstead Act, all the states had these had ratified it. And then it was ratified. It wasn't until the election with Al Smith in 1933, the Democrats, or when Roosevelt came in in 1933, that uh, they decided to repeal and have the 18th, I guess it was the 22nd Amendment when they repealed it to the Constitution. Now, these are the, I just want to show this to show that, uh, indeed, can you hit, hit that for me, Earl? I mean, I just wonder... Those, these are epistle moralities of Seneca, and three of these are very important in uh, the Stoic philosophy and also the abstinence uh, idea. One is on groundless fears. I can I had nothing but groundless fears up until I had my last slip in 19 uh, in October of uh, 1982. Uh, on the supreme good, his whole philosophy of Stoicism: you had to go to the supreme good in order to get away from self. On diseases of the soul. He felt that diseases, anybody using any kind of, of wine to, the, to where it causes change, uh, in harmful changes in behavior were diseases of the soul. And later on down the epistle there, uh, 50, 23, uh, 83, was on drunkenness. And that's when he made this distinction between ordinary drunkenness and accustomed drunkenness. With blackouts, he mentioned blackouts in that. The disease concept, Zelnick started on this in 1939, the same year the big book was written. He didn't complete it until 1960. It was published in 1960, but we, it never got into the medical school. It just came within a hair of getting into Yale Medical School, and, uh, but it never reached it. And he defined alcoholism as any use of alcoholic beverages that cause any damage to the individual or society or both. Vague as this statement is, it approaches an operational definition. Then he started in a scholarly way to describe what is a disease. And the Koch's postulate type of disease, it's in the essentialist mode, that's the first one, that kid that has measles up there, it means there's something which makes a person sick. You get something, you catch something, you come down with something. There's a virus there and a bacteria. 
Down below, the physicians, on the other hand, use the term disease in anomalous mode, in which there is still disease separate from a diseased organ or a diseased organism like diabetes, hypertension, arthritis, depression, epilepsy, alcoholism falls in that second classification. This is a disease that we have. This is a disease we may have at birth we, that we may acquire, but we have the disease. It's chronic, and it's not an, it's not an event disease. It's not an acute disease uh, like the essentialist mode, and it has uh, nothing to do, according to Jelnick, in the ism part of it, he said alcoholism is not in the bottle, but in the man. He felt there's something wrong, there's something wrong with Tom H. that makes me drink alcohol. It's not the bottle out there. And then he was the first one for almost a hundred years that start using alcohol as a drug. And he said it is a drug, and it's just as addicting, uh, as intermediate in kind between habit-forming drugs, such as he used the barbs and the bromides at that time which were in, in vogue, and uh, the addiction-producing drugs, such as heroin and uh, the opiates. And this is Jelnick's famous curve, which actually is Max Glatt's uh, transcription. Jelnick's curve was not a curve, it was a straight line, very much like Vern Johnson's, where you go from uh, type of relief drinking to painful drinking to uh, addictive drinking and compulsion. And this, he made up this, uh, this profile of the alcoholic from a questionnaire in the grapevine in 1945, 1,500 people answered this questionnaire, and through that he, he decided on this path of uh, deterioration and crossing the wall into addiction, which is that middle line, and compulsion, and the three Ds, the uh, death, uh, or detention, or dementia, and then the up, upward swing, the path of recovery, working through uh, what we know as 12 steps. Jelnick didn't use that. He, he used a, a word of recovery in, in recovering the psyche. Um, but this, uh, with the 1500 uh, questionnaire that came from the people in AA who were recovering alcoholics in 1945, plus uh, 500 to 750 of people at the Yale Clinic in Hartford and in the New Haven, uh, he got these statistics together. And this is a statistical study. That's what, uh, where this chart arose. And then they call it Jelnick's disease. Shankman, for a short period of time, used the term Jelnick's disease. And it was invoked for about 10 years in the 40s and early 50s, and then it dropped by the uh, uh, by the board. And this, I'm not going to read all this, but just the lay public was terribly confused as to what was just drinking and drunkenness and what was actual disease. And he said, unless we had loss of control, there wasn't true pathology. That was seemed to be the sine qua non. And loss of control meant compulsion, and compulsion meant addiction. And then this is a Mark Keller's article that came out in the Quarterly Journal on alcoholism, uh, 1982, in which it says, I remember Bunky, and in that article he goes through and um, goes through the fact of Jelnick's uh, estimation formula for how many alcoholics there were. And his great contribution, I think I could sum up as saying that he actually showed that alcoholism was a disease, had a natural history like any other disease, was an incurable disease, was a chronic disease, and was a disease that no medical, as far as he could tell, that no medical science uh, had for which no medical science had the solution, and uh, that the uh, he didn't understand he didn't understand how AA worked. He didn't understand anything about uh, uh, surrender, but he just knew that the only thing that that would make any sense in working with this type, the gamma alcoholic, the alpha and beta didn't have the disease process. He felt they were just abusive drinkers. The gamma, delta, and epsilon he felt were compulsed and had to drink. And he said the only thing that worked that he he knew of was total abstinence. Lifelong abstinence. Uh, he was, himself was a, an agnostic. He didn't buy uh, 
uh, any of the spirituality went there. He didn't know how they stayed this way. All he knew is that they did, uh, they seemed to uh, have a remission in their disease. But he wasn't, uh, he never got into the spiritual aspects. He simply described and identified the various drinking patterns. Now this is the, uh, the uh, map of the mind. This is Carl Jung, the Jungian map. And I'm just showing that to show that the, he had two types of unconscious, much like Freud. One was a collective unconscious, which seemed to stem from uh, primitive instincts that were worldwide and seemed to be ethnic. Uh, and he used this as archetypes of, of certain behavior that we were all bound to have because our ancestors all had it. He thought it was genetically transmitted. He thought every once in a while a Hitler or somebody would rise when all of these animalistic instincts in the old instinctual brain or uh, so-called animus would take, o- take over and start to run our lives on a, on a collective st- scale or on a mass scale like the, uh, the Nazism uh, type of, of, of thing that happened. He also had the personal unconscious, which is very close to Freud's uh, uh, libidinal uh, type of repression of our experiences. This is Freud's model. There's the id with the de- uh, defenses of the ego holding down those repressed uh, experiences and repressed fears and repressed... Uh, uh, libidinous uh, type of uh, uh, instincts, as well as our survival instincts. Then this is the McLean's model showing to the evolutionary or phylogenetic, he liked the word phylogenetic scale, that we go from the reptile, which is 80 million years or 100 million years back, the brain developed to the midbrain, and then the neomammalian brain and the horse developed with the limbic brain developing, and finally the uh, neocortex of the human brain. And the human is in the middle, if you can't recognize that. Uh, this is a, an interesting uh, map of the mind by Isaac. Isaac felt that uh, that you could take all Jung's and Freud's and Galen's idea of, of how the unconscious works, and there you'll see in the middle, melancholia, choler, choleric, phlegmatic, and sanguine. Those are the four humors of Galen that determine our unconscious or instinctual behavior. The melancholia was the black bile. The choleric was the angry person all the time. Um, the phlegmatic person was the self-possessed person, the cool individual who didn't seem to have much emotional uh, turmoil. And the sanguine person was the hail fellow when they're always happy. And uh, he took those four, and, and with the cross marks, the unstable and stable axis, he showed that that was directly re- related to the autonomic nervous system, which they called back in Cannon's day working at Harvard, the unconscious nervous system. And he thought that those who had a sympathetic overactivity were the unstable ones, and the ones who had a parasympathetic overactivity were the, were the stable ones. There was a damping effect with the, over, with the parasympathetic, and the adrenergic response of the sympathetic nervous system seemed to be cause excitation and cause agitation. And uh, also on that other axis, ex, crossing from extroverted to introverted, was that Jung's contribution. He felt that we could divide all the unconscious uh, types of drives and id, uh, drives and uh, uh, passions uh, and instincts into those that were extroverted in which uh, we didn't internalize these uh, these feelings and this unconscious brain was the brain of feeling as opposed to the thinking or cognitive brain of the upper neocortex and he felt that the introverted person ones who internalized all the stimuli that came through from the outside world and thus uh, they were usually people who who were unable to share or unable to relate at, uh, on any level, and that was me. I, I was always introverted, always internalizing, never sharing until I, I reached this program. And that X is down at the bottom. And this is the, 
what to, uh, all both uh, Young, he didn't name it, and and Jelinek, and I don't know if Freud did, uh, had this or not, but uh, Eisenach showed that the reticular activating system was the thing that actually kept the brain awake. The brain itself would be in a comatose state if it weren't for this alarm reaction. And you can see the ascending formation on the left side there coming up. And that filters out all of our sensations. This is our perception area. This is the thing that makes us perceive reality. And if, if we get this uh, stimulated, and we can stimulate it with the amphetamines and anything adrenergic, any of the agonists will stimulate this, and that will cause one uh, an extreme state of agitation and excitation and facilitation of the whole limbic system. But if you take the descending reticular formation, that seems to have a calming effect, a depressing effect, a non-excitatory effect. And that seems to be mediated through the parasympathetic nervous system or the cholinergic uh, system. And it's chemically mediated by the time it gets up to the hypothalamus. It's neurochemically mediated, but the chemi- it seems the communications between the various parts of the brain are chemical. Uh, it's communication through chemistry is a, um, a gentleman like to describe it. And these are the, some of the things that, that are located in the limbic system. And I'm just going to mention the one that affected me so much. This is the limbic system dissected out. And the one up at the top, number two up there, that's the so-called the amygdaloid bodies. And that seems to be the center in the brain for fear. And uh, in that center, uh, large amounts of serotonin seem to be released on a pulsatile type of, of expulsion and release. And I think my uh, I was born with a hypertrophied amygdaloid apparatus. Because <laughs> I was... I was scared to death from the first word go, and uh, I can't think of any good reason for all that. The other one is the fornix and the hippocampus. One of them, and the, and the uh, septum pellucidum is number one. That's the one that, that has to do with uh, pain and pleasure and, and reward and uh, uh, punishment. And the mammal, ma- mammillary bodies at the bottom there seem to have to do with uh, sexual uh, states, arousal states, and, gr- and grooming, and, and so forth, courtship states in uh, lower animals. So I think I have a, a one in there. On, I want to show one. Yeah, here we are on the hypothalamus. Uh, this is just a, a schematic representation of all these nuclei in the hypothalamus, each one having a different different neurochemical function for survival and reproduction. And this is the the one that uh, I uh, I thought Doug had. This is where the sympathetic nervous system in red is overacting, and the parasympathetic in blue is underacting. This is a, a fear reaction or a rage reaction. And that's the amygdaloid body. This is the brain's pharmacy. The brain can make its own own chemistry to do all the things that we can get out of the drugstore, really. And the one I wanted to emphasize there was that they found a receptor now for angel dust or phencyclidine. They have they have receptors for all of these substances except alcohol, nicotine, and cocaine. Pot, they found the THC, which is like THP, aphrodisiacs, and the GnRH, and so forth. But uh, I just wanted to show that our brain, if we leave it alone... Uh, and I had a hard time for years leaving mine alone, will actually uh, will actually generate its own chemistry and will actually give us some pretty good feelings if we just let it. And this is Ken Blum's work, which showed that there might be an encephalin deficiency state, low levels make the C57 black mice drink compulsively and around the clock. Moderate levels seem to be mice that can take it or leave it in the... DBH mice have very high levels of encephalin. You can juggle these around in the in the fourth ventricle and make them drink compulsively or, or become teetotalers. This is a picture here of um, Dr. Jack Norris, who started the first employment assistance program. And I, I wanted to mention it because he was instrumental in having this IDAA started, again by a chain reaction. He got uh, uh, Dr. Collier, 
uh, Kirby Collier interested in Rochester. He worked with Ethan Kodak in Rochester, Dr. Jack Norris. And he uh, got uh, Kirby interested in Rochester. He was a senior psychiatrist there. And Kirby got uh, Pearson, Clayton Pearson interested, who had the first IDAA meeting in the garage up in Clayton, New York, in the, the Thousand Islands uh, area. And uh, so that's why, why we're here today, because somebody met in the garage and decided it was a good idea for medical science and the spirituality to be combined in IDAA. And then this is the, my hero, or one of them, Dr. John. Dr. John went to a meeting in Toronto of the IDAA in 1961 and heard E.M. Nick say that alcoholism is a disease should be treated like any other disease. We don't understand what causes a disease. But unless you treat the alcoholic as if he is a diseased person, he's not going to recover. And Dr. John came back and started uh, Willing Way. And uh, Dr. John was very instrumental, I understand, from Al in, in getting, uh, having the meeting, doing a lot of the planning for the meeting here at the Hyatt. And that's the end of my story. The greatest story ever told and is still being told. Thank you very much.